Although, I've seen some scripts I know the words weren't spelled right. There was hardly any commas in it at all. So I don't think that's too important. Hey, you want to get on the train here, or you want to ruin another take, huh? It's too cerebral. We're trying to make a movie here, not a film. Man, I don't drop character till I've done a DVD commentary. You want to eat the writer? Be my guest. That will leave you to explain how else your character is supposed to get to Bremen. Why, hello! Welcome to another episode of the In the Mouth of Darkness Chatcast. I'm your host, Brad Gullickson, the Mouth Dork, and joining me today is Lisa Gullickson, Wife Dork. Hey, Lisa, how's it going? It's going so wonderfully. So proud to give you guys all of this hot content. Yeah, it's been, uh, the the week's been crazy. It's been a crazy week. That's what I was trying to say. Uh, I am uh, verklempt because I'm talking about Richard Stanley, uh, one of the most interesting filmmakers in the business, uh, the director of Dust Devil, Hardware. I think I really fell for the man uh, through the documentary Lost Souls. His epic saga of trying to get the Island of Dr. Moreau made had such a profound impact on me. And that was one of the earliest sessions of the Secret Society of Filmmasons at the Alamo Drafthouse in uh, Ashburn. That was a very memorable screening, and I fell hard for Richard Stanley. And I think that's also where you fell for Richard Stanley as well. Absolutely. Uh, His saga with making that particular film, he's definitely a guy with a point of view. Mm. And he is also a guy who does not deal with hurdles very well. (laughs) He just wants to manifest his vision. And I think that he was able to achieve that with color out of space. Yes. And when you hear that Richard Stanley is finally going to adapt an H.P. Lovecraft story and it's going to star Nicolas Cage, uh, you go to 10, right? Your enthusiasm hits the roof and you just cannot fathom what that vision is going to be. And sitting down in that theater at Fantastic Fest last year, like my whole body was a tingle. Like my enthusiasm, like, like my anticipation was um, uh, like, it, it, it's like walking, it's like Brad going into an Avengers movie. You know, we all know that I'm a huge MCU dork. Richard Stanley doing Lovecraft with Nicolas Cage. It's that level of, of insane excitement. Uh, and that's a hard thing to, uh, live up to, right? And I think after that first screening of Color Out of Space, I-, I had to process this movie. I really did. It was not necessarily what I thought it was, but you saw that film. You didn't have the the same I'm, level of anticipation. You're not that type of person. I'm not a Lovecraft person. No, no. I'm not necessarily always a horror person. It really does depend. I liked the idea of it being a science fiction film and um, infestation, alien infestation film. Those always entertain me. But what I think astounded me enough and made me fall in love with this film is the marriage of the beautiful and the ugly. Mm. Like when the when the color starts taking over and transforming the environment, it is so beautiful. It is lush. It is organic and yet alien, which was very cool. But then as you saw it infect the family, it was disgusting and it was- Tragic. Tragic and sticky. It's very sticky, very sticky. Uh, And and honestly, for me, it was having this conversation with Richard Stanley 
where I really came to appreciate the film itself. And you see that Color Out of Space is not like many other Lovecraft adaptations. It doesn't have a reverence for Lovecraft in a lot of ways. In fact, uh, right from the jump, Color Out of Space is challenging Lovecraft and his misogyny and uh, racism. And that was not apparent to me on my first watch. And you can hear it in this conversation where I start to realize what Stanley was doing with Lovecraft in Color Out of Space. Well, it's up to us as a culture to go like, well, what ideas are going to endure? Can we continue to tell Lovecraft stories and be compassionate and progressive? And Richard Stanley is saying, yes, he is a person who is profoundly influenced by Lovecraft, but through his humanist sieve through his vision, the ideas of Lovecraft are transformed. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think that's a good tease of this conversation. It's a short 15-minute uh, talk. We have it, I think, in the Super Mario Brothers room of the highball, the karaoke room. Uh, this this partook uh, uh, six months ago, but now the film it has hit theaters. If you can find it in an Alamo Drafthouse near you or another theater, please do so. When it hits VOD and Blu-ray, it's a blind buy as far as I'm concerned. It certainly stacks up right next to Dust Devil and hardware. Uh, so without any further ado, let's jump into this conversation. We'll meet you back on the other side and tell you what else we've got coming up this week because it's a crazy week. All right. Well, I'm going to put that right there. No worries. Um, Thanks for coming in. Oh man, thank you for having us. We really, really appreciate it. We just got out of the movie. We went to the press screen. Oh my god, that's a terrible time to see it. Uh, I, but I'm so glad that I was able to watch it on the big screen rather than watching it in a link or anything like that. And it was so transportive. Like when I walked out of the theater, I was shocked to see that it was light outside. Yeah, this film was not made to be watched in the morning. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's really a midnight movie. Um, I think the later at night, and the with the, lar the, the larger the audience and the more um, inebriated people. Well, I definitely am curious yeah. to watch it again with a crowd. Yeah. I really want to see it with a crowd. That's the thing sure. I've been enjoying the most, uh, just mm -hmm. from the twice that I've seen it late in um, Toronto, is that it's got a definite um, old-fashioned... Um, midnight or early hours of the morning. Well, and it, it actively engages the audience for a reaction. And, you know, it's when you're watching it with the press crowd and you're still getting, like, the press crowd, like, reacting to it, like, that's... To me, that shows, like, the power of the movie, that you can wake these guys up. And the images are so evocative, just, mm. like, how it can be simultaneously beautiful, but also so... I mean, you made something that's so gross. They're just <laughs> Thank moments you so that much, are just, just very yucky. And simultaneously funny as well, which yeah. not a lot of people have a, have, a, have a hard time with. It's like, oh, I'm meant to laugh or be horrified. Sure. Those the, are two if, adjacent if, emotions. Yeah, laughter it's something I'm very much after. Discomfort, yeah. I mean, no matter how terrible something is, even if you're straight-faced about it, the audience are going to generally giggle or laugh right afterwards because mm. they don't know how else to, um, to respond. Yeah. So that, yeah. those two things are usually right on edge. Yeah. So, like, when did you come to Lovecraft? Um, painfully young. Um, yeah. My mum started reading me Lovecraft stories when I was about seven or eight. Uh, yeah. And started me on the lighter, more fantasy-orientated stuff, like Dream Quest for Unknown Kadath, I think I met when I was about seven years old. And I was drawing things in crayon drawings when I was a kid, which were distinctly um, Lovecraftian. And then um, 
that naturally led me to um, harder stuff. So by the time I was 12 or 13, I was um, fully conversant with um, <laughs> the Cthulhu mythos and the dread um, Color Out of Space and all the other classics. Yeah, so when I was about 12 or 13, I read Color Out of Space for the first time. Good, and, good age for it. And I mean, it's, I, I became a Lovecraft obsessive because of Color Out of Space. And you know, I've seen uh, before. This was uh, Die Monster Die. Kind of, you know, doesn't really adapt it at all. The Boris Karloff film, but it's kind of uh, touches on it. Um, you know, I feel like you your films have had that sort of um, cosmic uh, dread sensibility in the past, but now you're fully committing to that Lovecraft vibe. How did you go about? Like I guess first off, like why color out of space? You know, as somebody who's been in into Lovecraft for a long time, how did this become your Lovecraft adaptation? Um, mostly because it was accessible. It was kind of the low hanging fruit that we could get at, and that um, most of the great Lovecraft stories, the settings are um, are difficult to get at. Like Del Toro's had a hard time with the Mountains of Madness because it's set in Antarctica. Right. Um, I know James Wan's wanted to do Call of Cthulhu for a while, but um, trying to get to the bottom of the Mariana Trench or have um, continents that are. Uh, are raised from the bottom of the ocean to the surface, etc. It's, it's kind of beyond most people's range. Mm-hmm. And thus far, the studios have shown a, um, a fear of um, going into these waters, um, partially because of its public domain. Um, the studios like to um, own the, the full rights to everything. Mm-hmm. And the fact that they don't own or control Cthulhu or the Necronomicon um, scares the majors. Mm-hmm. And uh, I noticed that pretty much every color out of space related movie that's come out before is suddenly being re released. Now, this one's coming out, which is exactly what the studios would have been frightened of. Oh, sure, but sure. Personally, I'm hoping that if this one um, does even just reasonably okay at the box office, it might open the gates for um, a whole slew of other Lovecraft films, which I would love to see. We, we pinpointed this because it's set in one farm. Uh, it's set in New England. It's um, it doesn't move much beyond the Gardner farm. Mm-hmm. So, um, Color Out of Space and Dunwich Horror were the two which I thought were the um, the most ripe for um, reappraisal. So, why Color Out of Space and not Dunwich Horror? Um, the um, when I wrote the initial screenplay, I was very keen to go after Dunwich Horror because mm-hmm. um, I wanted to do the Waitley family for a, a really long time, but just feel that they haven't been given their um, their screen due. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, um, the initial um, backer of the film, um, who was the guy who funded um, the Theatre Bazaar, the um, the anthology project that I was involved with for a bunch of years ago, um, insisted that it should be um, Colour Out of Space. Mm-hmm. I was kind of like, oh, can I do Dunwich Horror? No, you must do Colour Out of Space. So I um, eventually sat down and tried to find a way of making it work. Oh, that's fascinating. All right. Um, can yeah, I ask jump, Yeah, okay. yeah, jump in, jump in. So jump you're in. talking about accessibility. <laughs> particularly for people who are less familiar with Lovecraft. And there's an easy in, there's a meteorite, weird things happen. But one thing that I think is a stark contrast to a lot of horror movies, science fiction movies that are coming out now is we are so preoccupied with global warming and that we are going to end themselves. But with this film, it's talking about the, the end of humanity is going to come from without. It's not going to come from within. And, and how do you feel that this movie speaks to today where we're so egotistical, where we think, well, we are clearly going to end ourselves because we're just the coolest? 
Well, I, th I do notice that there's been a, a, a massive revival of interest in, in Lovecraft over the last few years, and that he's on his way to becoming one of the most famous authors of the 20th century, and that's got to be for a reason. Mm -hmm. I think his work reflects some kind of deep-rooted uncertainty about the future, where people are just not sure whether the human race will even be here in another 200 years, or quite what kind of world our children will be growing up in. Um, simultaneously, there's been a crash in confidence in most of the major orthodox religions. There's very few people who are like converting to Roman Catholicism or to um, Orthodox Judaism, and Orthodox Islam's also got its issues, and that provokes questions about God and um, what created us. Uh, sense that if something did create us, it might be um, impartial or um, utterly inhuman or not particularly friendly, I think is probably more relevant um, now than ever before, or at least um, Lovecraft's ideas are um, perhaps no longer as um, far out or as alien as they seemed in, um, in the 1920s. And certainly there's an element of, um, of, the, of, yeah, the global warming thing creeps into colour the notion of um, the climate and the environment mutating and changing without us being able to um, control it or turn it back or... Um, and perhaps or, acclimating or, somebody or, else. Or, or, know, or know where it's going. Yeah. Right, right. right. And, mm. and ignoring it too, until it's too late. Yeah, as we all, as we all try to do. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. interesting. So, and that's, I guess, kind of paralleled with um, issues about, um, for me, about cancer and um, the death of one's loved ones. Uh, my mum, who introduced me to um, Colour Out of Space, had a very lingering 10-year um, death from lymphoma, and uh, I went full circle and read her um, Colour Out of Space, her deathbed, but got to see how um, people's personalities and um, bodies mutate and change beyond our ability to, um, to change them back, and how our, our loved ones almost mutate away from us. Yeah. Which, Watching the film, I mean, clearly the short story is a short story, and you have to bring a lot into the story to make your film. And I see a lot of like Richard Stanley in this movie. Clearly, it's a very personal story to you. Like, how do you how do you take Lovecraft? How do you add your own stuff into it? Like, my first process? mission was to try to make him relevant to now. Mm -hmm. I thought, okay, we can't keep this in the 1920s or in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. um, I want people to um, realize that uh, the Lovecraftian worldview is a, a clear and present danger to us and to, uh, to future generations and not something quite from, um, from before the war, but something which is still um, deeply disturbing and uh, which still presents um, yeah, major um, obstacles to... Um, yeah, our ability to feel any kind of confidence in um, in the future. So that was the first thing, was to try to reposition it and ground it in the now. And then the next part of it was kind of a, a, a battle with Lovecraft throughout, because Lovecraft's such a, a nihilist that um, he really doesn't have any faith whatsoever in humanity. And um, the um, Gardner family are very thinly characterised in the original story. Mm -hmm. um, we know that, they, that the kids are getting killed off progressively throughout the tale, but we never really get to meet the kids mm -hmm. or the, um, the mutating um, wife in the attic. Yeah. So um, part of it was to try to actually um, make, turn them into three-dimensional characters um, and also to um, 
we wanted to address Lovecraft's um, racism and his misogyny because those are both elements of his character which um, I, I can't agree with yeah, uh, sure. which um, I felt I needed to try to open up some kind of dialogue with um, with um, the Lovecraft pantheon by um, deliberately going there and saying okay let's um, make certain that if we've got um, identifiable leads in this movie that um, it's going to fly in the face of the um, the traditional Lovecraft worldview. Well, you open the film with Lavinia. Yeah, it, yeah. it opens with Lavinia and Ward. And yeah. Ward's also the first um, black or mixed race student to come I from the think uh, about that. from the Biscatonic University ever. Which, uh, <laughs> awesome! <laughs> I never, I didn't even register that. I saw, uh, well, I saw the Biscatonic University, but that didn't even like register with me. Yeah, so uh, that's that, rad. That, that, that the opening was a deliberate um, shot across the bows for uh, the traditional yeah. uh, Lovecraft community. Oh man, I love that. Um, okay, so, but but like going back to, you know, incorporating your 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 mother's battle into this story, uh, is is it just a nat- Was that just a natural fit? Like, is that just what, like, when you were like, okay, we're gonna make color out of space. This is I'm gonna deal with this aspect of what I've gone through. Um, it was happening simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Um, Colorado Space had already shown up on the radar before she died. Okay. And uh, I, I, I got to tell her that we were making the movie. She didn't believe me. <laughs> uh, she was like, no, nah, it'll all come to nothing. It'll come to nothing. It'll spiral down to nothing. And it's like, no, Bob, it's going to be okay. <laughs> so uh, some aspect of trying to deal with that nihilism was, um, was there. Uh, in um, real life as well, I had to kill her in the end. Which um, yeah, there were uh, a choice came to whether to to go on hydrating her or stick in the feeding tube, and I decided not to. Mm-hmm. So um, that also, which wasn't popular with my sisters, we had a, sure. a, a, a large um, family falling out over the um, over the euthanasia aspects. So that also bleeds through into the um, into the completed movie with the issue over whether Nick should um, should kill his wife and son or not. Mm. Which, that's something I found really beautiful about the character of Teresa. The fact that she did she did have cancer, she did have tumors, but that didn't that didn't turn out to be what her character was about. Her character really was about being a mother, really was about being there for her kids and her family. I thought that I found that really refreshing. Yeah, and she gets kind of chipped away piece by piece, yeah. which is kind of what happens. Yeah. Um, yeah. And she loses, keeps losing little bits of herself and bits of her personality. And eventually her family also had to make that call. That call of, well, this is the time to end her suffering. Was that? Yeah, uh, it was pretty much where I was at, and it, was, uh, it wasn't easy. Uh, right. In real life, I was told that if I stopped hydrating her, she would slip into a coma and pass her after about... Um, three days and in real life it took seven days and seven nights she was super tough and mm-hmm. um, hung on to the end and it was a, a pretty um, grueling and unpleasant process so you've now you, know, you, you wrote the screenplay you've got the movie out there just before we get out of here I want to like what does it feel like to be ushering Colorado Space into theaters now into audiences um, well, I'm super pleased the way it's turned out. I have to hope that um, 
that um, Lovecraft would be a, would approve of it. Um, I know he was an atheist, so he probably well, it probably isn't up there with a cloud somewhere watching. But um, I also hope that the old ones and the colour itself are pleased with the uh, the way it's turned out. Mm. I had a lot of dreams during the course of the shoot in which um, the um, colour was um, trying to direct me. Oh, and really? Saying, make me beautiful. Um, I don't want to be ugly and make me, make, make, make me beautiful when it takes over Nick, it should look like the way it's, I'm, I'm taking you over now. Look at your hands and I look at my hands in the dream and for these sort of flaming pink tendrils would be bursting through my flesh and things, so um, I'm rather hoping that it's happy, uh, that it's gotten the adaptation that it wants. So, uh, the, like, uh, the, you know, the color itself, you're bringing the color into celluloid, like, just, like, design, like, th does it come from your dreams, your visions, were you seeing it, you know, uh, in, in those, or was it a long process of actually finally, like, color correcting it? And it was a super long process that was, um, really going on right to the point where this film screened. Um, I didn't see the, um, complete, uh, the, um, the completed VFX work literally until the very first public screening, just oh because the, um, the rendering was taking such a long time. I was stuck for um, weeks in um, Madrid, and Madrid's most boring daytime TV show, Render Farm, when you, you sit around with a bunch of Spanish computer nerds waiting day after day so you could uh, um, see the shot. And we, 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 there was an onus on us to actually show the um, to show the thing, because so many people were saying, "Don't show it," and um, it's Lovecraft, don't go there. But even Lovecraft does bring on the monster in pretty much all of his stories. Usually, at the end of the story, the thing usually does show up, even for a paragraph or so. Lovecraft knows you can't keep it behind the door forever. Mm -hmm. So we were looking at um, things like the original Virgil Finlay artwork from Weird Tales magazine, because I know Lovecraft was a big fan of Virgil yeah. Finlay and approved of his rendition. So that's pretty much what I said to all of the VFX people. It's like, we've got to try and go here. Oh. Richard, thank you so much for chatting with us. Like we said, we just came out of it, we really enjoyed it, and we want to watch it with a crowd. Yeah, it's so good for an audience. That's, 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 that's the thing that makes me happiest about it, oh. is just hearing folk being entertained. That's yeah, well, they're going to be, they're going to, they're going to be entertained. Ultimately, all the subtext is stuff which is meant to be secondary to um, the fact that it plays okay and yeah. that it shows people a good time. Well, we're going to see it again, so thank you so thank much. Thank you so much. Good stuff, guys. Thanks all right, take care. Good luck, and congrats. And there you go. From Texas to Virginia, we're back. Yeah. Lisa, I love when Stanley is talking about encountering Lovecraft as a child and how his mom used to read him, you know, the dream quest of unknown Kadath. And he would be uh, doing these little doodles. And it was very apparent when you look back on those doodles that they have a very Lovecraftian origin. <laughs> yeah. uh, I really, 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 really enjoyed this conversation. And I love how he is bringing himself to this story. He's bringing his experiences with his mother having cancer to the story. And, and it really is so personal. Yeah. And, you know, it's such a bummer when you only have 15 minutes to talk to a filmmaker like Richard Stanley, because I felt like 
by the end of this conversation, we were really hitting some interesting ideas. And, and, and then it was like, suddenly it's over. We were talking about Richard Stanley's <laughs> dreams. This is where I wanted to start this conversation. Why didn't we start here? And now the conversation's over. So, oh, well. He definitely seemed like a guy who was willing to go there, yeah. which is always exciting. And if he didn't have that publicist uh, over his shoulder, I felt like we could have continued this conversation for like three hours. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, maybe... Maybe we'll have Richard Stanley back on the show someday and we can start with the dreams. Open door policy. You're welcome anytime, Richard Stanley. Of course, of course. So that is going to do it today. Uh, tomorrow is Thursday. We're not going to have an episode for you tomorrow, but we are going to have another episode for you Friday. That's with the entire cast of VFW, including Stephen Lang and director Joe Bigos. You're not going to want to miss that conversation. Uh, you know, like I said yesterday on the Chat Club episode, it's incredibly surreal and wonderful and man, just an extreme treat for Lisa and I. Um, and yeah, then we'll be done with the Fantastic Fest conversations for now because we still have Benson and Moorhead chat that we had at Fantastic Fest. Jeez Louise, we have so many goodies. To until Synchronic gets released. Uh, but then after that, we wanted to get all these Fantastic Fest chats out there this weekend. And now next week, we are going to go back to Park City, Utah with a whole slew, a month-long series of Sundance chats. Ready thyselves. Ready thyselves. Lisa, where can our listeners find you online these days? I am at Sidewalk Siren on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd. And you can find our other dorks, uh, Brian Young, at the Turtle Dork on Twitter, at the Turtle Dork One on Instagram, Darren Smith, at the Disco Dork on Twitter, although he doesn't tweet anymore, so you should really pester him on Instagram, also at the Disco Dork, and tell him to start tweeting because Brad misses his tweets. And yes, you can follow me, Brad Gullickson, at MouthDork on all social medias. And until next time, which is Friday. Take care. Visions are worth fighting for. Why spend your life making someone else's dreams 